you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Workplace communication predictions over the last five years have been dominated by the rise of chat apps like Slack and the obsolescence of email. Yet email lives and thrives today. According to Radicati, nearly 300 billion emails are sent and received every day. The conversation around email, though such an important driver of workplace communications, has been stagnant. Enter Superhuman, the next generation email platform. Superhuman has gotten the attention of Silicon Valley's most prominent, and the levels of virality in the product mirror Slack and Dropbox in the early days. It was a pleasure to have Rahul Vora, founder and CEO of Superhuman, this week. Rahul has a uniquely quantitative perspective on evaluating product market fit, a topic we spent much of the discussion on. He also shared his perspective as to what holds for the future of email and why he and his team are so well-placed to compete with free from the 800-pound gorilla of email, Google. Welcome, Rahul. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. You know, Rahul, I'm I'm excited to have you on the show today and, and dive pretty deeply into Superhuman, your perspectives on building the fastest email client in the world, quantitatively measuring product market fit and operational lessons from founding to scaling a high growth company. But before we dive into those topics, tell us a little bit more about your background and the journey to founding Superhuman. Sure. So what most people may not know is that this is not my first rodeo. I started a company called Reportive, which also was an email company. We built that first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users over on the right-hand side of Gmail what they looked like, where they worked, their recent tweets and links to their social profiles. Uh, We grew rapidly and then two years later, we were acquired by LinkedIn. And during those four years, I developed a very intimate view of email. I could see Gmail bizarrely becoming worse every single year, becoming more cluttered, using more memory, consuming more CPU, slowing down your machine and still not working offline. And on top of this, people were installing plugins like ours, Reportive, but also Boomerang, Mixmax, Clearbit, you name it, they had it. And each plugin took those problems of clutter, memory, CPU, performance, offline, and made all of them dramatically worse. So at that point, we decided it was time for change. We imagined an email experience that is blazingly fast, where searches are instantaneous, where every interaction is 100 milliseconds or less, an email experience where you never have to touch the mouse, you could do anything from the keyboard and fly through your inbox, an email experience that you know just worked offline, so you could be productive from anywhere, and of course, an email experience that had the best Gmail plugins built in natively, and yet was still somehow subtle, minimal, and visually gorgeous. And taking all of that together took us to what superhuman is today. And so tell us what superhuman is. You alluded to a lot of the a lot of the pieces around it, but what's the what's the mission statement of the company? Tell us what superhuman is. For sure. So in short, superhuman is the fastest email experience in the world. Most of our customers get through their email twice as fast compared to in Gmail. They reply to their important email sooner and they can sustainably maintain inbox zero. And the goal of superhuman the company is literally to make you brilliant at what you do. And we are super, super keen on that, being very serious here. We're not talking about just being great or just being effective. We really want to make every profession in the world brilliant at what they do. And so building a best-in-class email client and experience, is, it's a really interesting problem to tackle. And you, you alluded to it to a couple, of, uh, you know, a couple of times. But if we rewinded the clock, you know, the skepticism I think most would have, and, and maybe, you know, and maybe many still do, you know, that are out there is, 
how do you compete against Gmail, right? It's a free product with significant adoption and un unparalleled compute power. You alluded to it a bit, you know, talk a little bit more about that. Sure. So you compete against Gmail, I think the same way one would compete against any incumbent, uh, which is to use that very advantage as the thing that you go up against. So Gmail has to serve 1.5 billion users operating at this incredible massive scale. And that actually causes a number of severe disadvantages. Uh, number one, they don't have the agility of a startup. Number two, they have a much more complex organization to push product design and engineering through. And number three, and this is arguably the most important, they can't focus on a user demographic like we can. 1.5 billion people is rather a lot of people. Superhuman would be a billion dollar company if we had just a few hundred thousand subscribers. And so what that lets us do is focus on the needs of those first few hundred thousand people, knowing that if we nail that, then we'll become a billion dollar company. And a good way to see the difference here is uh, just the number of emails that people receive that they need to do something with. You know, this is a fun question that I always like to ask uh, engineering candidates. I can ask it to you now. Do you know or can you guess the average number of emails that a Gmail user receives per day that they should do something with? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, let's say 300. It's a, a very plausible sounding answer, but the actual answer is in fact just five. Huh. The average Gmail user only receives five emails a day that they need to do something about. Now, you gave the answer for a superhuman user. You're absolutely right. For people like you and me and all of our users, it's in the many hundreds per day. And yet no one is building software for people like you and me, at least uh, until superhuman, of course. And uh, that, that's really how you take on an incumbent. It's identify a subset of users who are being underserved, who have a real problem and who are willing to pay for that problem. You've really translated the experience of, of thinking through the product and the, and the product design um, by not only talking about the conceptual you know, idea of product market fit, but really actually coming up with a, a, a pretty iconic framework on how to quantitatively measure it. And I, and I wanna dive into that you know, pretty deeply. I think it's, it's really quite fascinating and an interesting, um, an interesting lesson in, in conceptually how to think let's before we jump into that though distill what product market fit means to you it's a, you know it's obviously an incredibly pervasive term in in the tech community and for startups but what does it mean to you yeah it was a, a very emotional journey i think for me coming to this this framework that has since been so widely adopted uh, and it really all started with me trying to find a way to explain to our team in the early years of Superhuman why we weren't ready to add a ton of customers to the product. You know, I was receiving this intense pressure, both from myself and also from within my team, uh, to launch, to get Superhuman out there. And it had already been a number of years, and we were still not launched. Uh, and my last company, by the way, we started, scaled, and were acquired in less than two years. So it was quite a different experience. I looked for a number of definitions, and the first one I found uh, was this idea from Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, that uh, you know he's very famous for saying, which is, as a founder, you should focus on making something people want. And I think that's pretty interesting, uh, but I kept searching for 
other definitions, other ideas. Sam Altman, who took over YC after Paul, had a different notion of measuring product success. He would say you have product market fit when users love your product so much that they spontaneously tell other people to go and use it. And I think you have two really interesting slices there. On the one hand, Paul is talking about making something people want. On the other hand, Sam is talking about distribution and, and how likely people are to recommend it. But it is perhaps Mark Andreessen, arguably one of the best venture capitalists of all time, who has the most vivid definition. And you might expect that given that he coined the term product market fit. So he would say, you can always feel it when product market fit is not happening. Customers aren't quite getting value. Users are not growing that fast. Word of mouth is not spreading. The press reuse a kind of blah, and the sales cycle takes too damn long. But, he would say, you can always feel it when product market fit is happening. Customers are buying as fast as you can add servers. You're hiring sales and support as fast as you can. Reporters are constantly calling about your hot new thing. Money is piling up in your checking account, and investors are camping outside your house. Now, as vivid and as compelling as Andreessen's definition of product market fit is, it is still a lagging indicator. By the time investors are camping outside your house, you obviously already have product market fit. And so I continue to search. I searched high and low. I spoke to all the experts, and I found this guy, Sean Ellis. Uh, and Sean actually ran early growth at Dropbox, LogMeIn, Eventbrite, he even coined the term growth hacker back in the day. And Sean found a leading indicator, one that is benchmarked and predictive. You just ask your users this, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product and then measure the percent who answer very disappointed? And after benchmarking hundreds of startups, Sean found that the companies that struggle to grow almost always get less than 40% very disappointed. And the companies that grow the most easily almost always get more than 40%. In other words, if more than 40% of your users would be very disappointed without your product, then you have initial product market fit. And that became the basis for the framework, almost the algorithm that we came up with in order to iterate and systematically work your way towards product market fit. Yeah, I want to I talk about that framework in a, in a lot of detail in, in the conversation today. One of the nuances you know, you've previously talked about, and again, you alluded to in, in the differing dif definitions from you know, Paul Graham, Sam Altman, and Mark Andreessen was, is really this idea of what product market fit means to companies you know, pre-launch and post-launch, right? The pervasive idea in tech today is you know, launch as quickly as possible, get a bunch of feedback, listen to your users, uh, and iterate. Um, you had an interesting journey here at Superhuman compared, you know, to your prior prior success and, and prior company, which is the whole life cycle was wrapped up, you know, for your prior organization in two years. And here, you, as you mentioned, you took quite a bit of time to launch. Why didn't you follow the pathway of, you know, quickly launch, get feedback, iterate with the customer? It's kind of that classic, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, mantra or classic uh, ordain as you were finding product market fit. How, why did you think about that differently? I think the two products were just so very different. Reportive, when it launched, uh, it, you, you couldn't really do anything. You know, there was no interaction. We were simply showing you information about the people who emailed you. Uh, and in many ways, it was a toy. It was a toy that turned into a very powerful business tool for rather a lot of people, 
but it was initially a toy. Uh, and the, the shocking fact about Reportive is I essentially single-handedly coded it over the course of six weeks, that very first version, and that was the version that launched, and that scaled to tens of thousands of users uh, over the first day and over the following weeks, and you know, really just took off from there. Now, the thing is, it's okay for a product to be a toy when it is an adjunct to an experience, when it is not the core workflow itself. And Reportive was not core workflow. Gmail was core workflow. But with Superhuman, the promise is very different. The promise is you can use this as your core email experience and you're going to do your email twice as fast. The bar for that is not the bar of a toy. The bar for that is mission-critical software for work. And so it's just a very different kind of product. And intuitively, I felt inside that uh, a launch would be a really bad idea. And I'd seen this go wrong for so many other productivity companies, whether they were email clients or not, but they would launch the thing, they'd get tens of thousands of users, because if you're semi-competent at marketing, you can do that. They'll come in, they'll use the product, and of course, what will happen is they'll run into a tremendous number of bugs. And this isn't uh, because of the team or the, or the product, it's just because productivity has such a large surface area of what the product can do and the data it has to encounter and the systems it has to work with. And then the team will be overwhelmed by these thousands of bug reports. They won't be able to fix any of them in time. They don't get to learn. They don't get to set up an iteration cycle. And I just found that, that whole idea to be ludicrous. Like, why would you knowingly go and shoot yourself in the foot? And so I remember talking about this notion uh, with uh, a good friend, another founder, Shishir Mahotra, he's actually a founder of Coda, another productivity company. Uh, and he had actually formulated this into a framework that immediately resonated with me. And I thought I would share with our audience here. Uh, he also was doing the slow launch or the iterative build for Coda. And he, he formulated it as thus, that you only ever launch for three reasons. Either you need more capital or you need more candidates or you need more customers. And if you have a good supply of all of those three, if you have enough money in the bank and you have enough people who wanna work at your company and you have a steady supply of leads, then you don't actually need to launch. And launch would probably be a distraction and maybe even detrimental to the trajectory of the company. Uh, and so that re resonated tremendously with me and perfectly encapsulates why we did not launch at Superhuman. And so you came up with the framework, right? And and now I actually want to dive into into the framework because I think there's a, there's a lot of nuance there, and it's, it's it's very very well framed out. You developed a framework, you know, that really had you know a set of you know four steps um, for thinking about product market fit. We're really optimizing product market fit and having a system. Talk about that at a, at a high level, and then you know we'll dive into the mechanics of each of the steps uh, in that optimization pattern. Absolutely. So yes, there are four steps. The steps are segment, analyze, build, and repeat. So step number one is to segment, to find your supporters and paint a picture of your highest expectation customers. Step two, analyze, is to analyze all the feedback that the, the algorithm or the, the engine, as I like to call it, gives you, and then use that to convert customers who might be on the fence into fanatics who really love and evangelize your product. Step three is to build your roadmap. You know, one of the coolest things about this engine is it will automatically generate a roadmap. 
And the idea here is to build your roadmap by doubling down on what users love whilst systematically addressing what holds users back. And step four is to repeat this process and to take the metric and make it part of the company DNA so you can constantly iterate and improve on it over time. And so let's talk about each step. So your first step, as you said, is to segment to find your supporters and then paint a picture of your high expectation customers. You know, how specifically did you do this and, and what were the insights you gleaned when you went through the first step of the framework? Sure. So the beginning of this step is to survey. You want to email four questions to every user. These four questions are, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product? What type of person do you think would most benefit from the product? What is the main benefit that you get from the product? And how can we improve the product for you? And over the next uh, four steps, including this one, we will analyze the answers to each of these questions uh, and use it to run the whole engine. But for now, we want to focus on that first question. How would you feel if you could no longer use the product? Uh, so you have three possible answers, very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, and not disappointed. And anyone who says very disappointed obviously really loves the product. And you just want to chart those numbers. Uh, now, the actual numbers for Superhuman in the summer of 2017 was that only 22% of our users would be very disappointed without the product. And if you recall the Sean Ellis metric, his benchmark is that 40% plus of users should be very disappointed without the product in order to have product market fit. So at 22%, we very clearly did not have product market fit. Now, that may seem sad, but at least I could explain our situation to the team. And most excitingly, I had a plan to increase our product market fit score. So how do we do that? Well, this is where we get into, get into segmentation. And we want to understand who are the people who really love our product. And for this, I like to use the concept of a high expectation customer. This is a concept that I learned from Julie Sapan. Julie led early marketing at Dropbox, Airbnb, and many other great companies. Now, the HXC, the highest expectation customer, is the most discerning person within your target demographic. They are the person who will enjoy your product for its greatest benefit, and they will help spread the word. And critically, others want to be like them because they see them as clever, judicious, or insightful. And I know it's rather an abstract notion, so I'm going to give an example. And Actually, I'll give two examples. I'll give Dropbox and Airbnb. So the Dropbox HXC simply wants to simplify their life. They're trusted, they're organized, they're tech savvy, they're looking for ways to get back time in their day. And at the end of the day, they just want to know that someone has their back when it comes to their life's work. I happen to be an example of the Dropbox HXC, and I'm sure many of our listeners today are also. A completely different example would be Airbnb. The Airbnb HXC does not simply want to visit new places, they want to belong. They want to experience Paris as if they really live there. And Airbnb's early success came from focusing on these influencers and these tastemakers. So the question for our listeners is this, how do you create your own HXC? Well, go back to the survey, analyze the results to question number one. Take all the users who said they'd be very disappointed without your product and then 
analyze their answers to question number two. Who do you think this is best for? And as it turns out, this is a very powerful question, as happy users will almost always describe themselves using the words that matter most to them. You can then turn these into a rich and detailed description of your own highest expectation customer. And it might be helpful to hear an example, so I can share the example for Superhuman. So for Superhuman, we call our highest expectation customer, Nicole. She's a hardworking professional. She deals with many people. She might be an executive, a founder, an investor, or a manager. She works super hard, often into the weekend. She considers herself really busy. She wishes she had more time. She does feel she's productive, and she's self-aware enough to realize she could be better, and she'll occasionally investigate ways to improve. Now, this is where, in your description of your HXC, you want to get into the numbers that matter, the, the metrics that kind of capture who they are. So for a Nicole, on a typical day, she'll read 100 to 200 emails, and on a busy day, she might send 40 to 80 emails. And this is the most important part. She considers it part of her job to be responsive, and she prides herself on being so, because she knows that if she's not responsive, she could block her team, she could damage her reputation, or she could cause missed opportunities. And then here's the magic part. You go back to all those survey results, you take each response, and you assign a persona to each one. And then you take the users who most love your product. These are the people who'd be very disappointed without it, your highest expectation customers, and you use them to narrow the market. So let's think of a simplified example. Let's pretend that Superhuman is awesome only for founders, managers, executives, and business development, and that it really doesn't work that well for sales, customer success, engineering, or data science. Now, in practice, it actually does, but for the purpose of this conversation, let's pretend it doesn't. You would then remove those survey responses from the whole set of surveys and afterwards recompute your very disappointed percentage. When we did that for Superhuman, our percentage jumped from 22% by 10 to 32%, which is a huge, huge increase. This is what I call segmentation. Now, we're not quite at 40% yet, but in just a few minutes, we made significant progress in that first step. And how do you think of the feedback or the, or the potential critique that, you know, if you've, you know, on, on the one hand with the high expectation customer framework, you know, you certainly have a tool to focus the entire company really on serving a narrow segment better than anybody else, right? Some out there find it too limiting and, and actually argue that narrowing in on such a specific customer base early on is, you know, potentially not the right, you know, not the right direction or, or potentially too limiting, right, early on. How do you, how do you think about that? I think it's a valid perspective to have, but one that I wholeheartedly disagree with. And there are so many examples, countless examples of the opposite, in fact, being true. I think Paul Graham even wrote words to this effect in his essay, Startup Equals Growth, where he talks about the landscape of startup ideas. And he observes that this landscape is not jagged. In fact, it's rather smooth. The best startup ideas are adjacent to each other. And in his essay, he gives the example of Airbnb, 
which began as couch surfing, which, as we know, is not a huge industry, uh, but turned into room sharing and, and now is directly taking on the hotel industry. And they were able to climb this landscape of ideas. Uh, another example would be Uber, where they started by serving the, the needs of the wealthy, essentially a black car service in one or two cities where you needed it, namely San Francisco and New York, and now has turned into this juggernaut of a company where their transportation plus more for everybody. Uh, and then my last and possibly most favorite example, just because of you know, how, how unassuming the beginnings were, uh, was AngelList, where I, you know, they started as, as essentially an email newsletter. And I know this because my last company, Reportive, was one of the very first companies to ever raise money on AngelList. And it was literally just Nivi would send an email to the 100 or 200 angels who had signed up at the time. And over time has turned into this powerhouse of a company where it's part social network, part back office of VC funds, uh, part pooling of capital, part an index fund for Silicon Valley. Uh, it's, it's just incredible what they've been able to pull off. And so, yes, whilst I understand the logic of the complaint, I just don't think it's valid at all. History shows that, in fact, the opposite is true. I think that's exactly right. I, I also think it, in the early days, it's, it's especially credent to focus in on a very narrow customer set or user base that loves the product, right? And to the examples that you had mentioned, you know, we see it time and time again that once you reach any scale, you know, of interest, you always have the opportunity to break into ancillary products and serve, you know, tangential customer bases or, or user bases or so. But if you can find the depth and penetration, right, in an, in an exact uh, customer base, the the power of the product shines through. And I think when you when you look at the, you know, second step of of the framework, right, as you alluded to earlier, it's it's it was really to analyze feedback and then convert you know, those specific users into fanatics. What were the key questions you asked to move from segmentation to conversion? Um, and what was the impetus behind those key questions? You know, Rahul, one of the things I love about your framework is when you list out some of these questions, right? Who do you think should use the product? What do they like most about it? These, on the surface, they feel like such obvious questions, but the way that you describe it or, the, or really the intent behind those questions that you see through in your framework and with your product sense, you really find the deeper meaning in it. So talk about, you know, those key questions, right, as you move from segmentation to conversion, but but really specifically why, why the why behind it, right, really the impetus behind those questions. For sure. So we had four questions in total. We've already used the first two. Now we're going to use the last two. And they are, what is the main benefit you receive from the product? And how can we improve the product for you? And the reason we're asking these is we really need to understand two things. Number one, what, or rather, why do people love our product? And number two, what holds people back from loving our product? And to understand why people love our product, we go back to our survey. We focus only on users who would be very disappointed without our product. Remember, these are the people who love it. And we analyze their results to question number three. What is the main benefit you receive from our product? And uh, for those who maybe haven't run such a survey, I'm just going to read out some examples of superhuman answers, uh, and then you'll see how useful this question can be. For example, processing email is much faster with superhuman for two reasons. Show one email at a time, 
speed is much better than Gmail, I get to my inbox in half the time. The app is crazy fast. The UX and keyboard shortcuts made me feel like an actual superhuman. Faster responsiveness or navigation. Superhuman is so much faster than Gmail. I can work through my incoming email more quickly. Speed, aesthetics, I can do everything from the keyboard. Speed and the great set of keyboard shortcuts. So what I then do is I take all of these answers, I remove all the filler and fluff words, and I throw it up into a word cloud. And then it almost always becomes as clear as day. I'm looking at the word cloud for superhuman right now, and the biggest words are keyboard, speed, shortcuts, fast, faster, focus, flow. People love superhuman for its speed, focus, and keyboard shortcuts. And getting to know that and really hearing it from your users in their own words is critical. It's key. So now we know why people love our product. Equally, we need to know the other question. What holds people back from loving our product? And this is where we go back to all the data. Now, imagine a pie chart. You've got the very disappointed segment, you've got the somewhat disappointed segment, and you've got the not disappointed segment. We want to grow the size of the very disappointed segment. And first, and as painful as it is, we have to ignore the not disappointed crowd. They are so far from loving the product that they are essentially a lost cause. This is important because they will ask for all kinds of distracting things. And as counterintuitive as it may feel, do not act on their feedback. So that just leaves the somewhat disappointed segment. Maybe we can help them fall in love with our product. And the answer is yes, we most certainly can. But again, and I cannot stress this enough, do not act directly on their feedback because many of them will remain somewhat disappointed no matter what you do for them. And so their requests just end up distracting. So how do you decide who to listen to? And again, this is one of the most exciting parts. Here's a little piece of magic. We use the main benefit that we just computed to segment the somewhat disappointed users. First, the set of somewhat disappointed users for whom speed was not the main benefit. I strongly, and this is obviously the superhuman example, I strongly advise that you ignore those people because the main benefit does not resonate with them. Even if you built everything that they wanted, they are unlikely to fall in love with your product because again, the main benefit does not resonate. And that leaves the sub-segment for whom the main benefit does resonate. In the superhuman example, for whom speed was the key thing. And I strongly advise that you pay very special attention to these because the main benefit does resonate and something, probably something small, holds them back. Now the question is, how do we figure out what? How do we figure out what holds these folks back? Well, we take this subsegment and we analyze their responses and their responses only to the fourth and final question, how can we improve the product for you. You'll get a whole bunch of statements just like before. I'm not going to read them out, but take out the filler words, throw them onto a word cloud, and it will be again as clear as day. And for superhuman, and this is many years ago before we had a mobile app, the biggest word was mobile. It was the lack of our mobile app. And beyond that, it became less obvious and more interesting. People wanted more integrations, better attachment handling, more calendaring options unified inbox, and so on. 
into the long tail. Now to increase your product market fit score, all you have to do is build these things because that would then convert these users who are only somewhat disappointed without the product into fanatics who love the product. Now it's a very mechanical, logical chain of events that we've taken to get here. I'm just gonna summarize because it's quite a few different steps. So remember, we sent out a survey. We asked four questions. The first question was, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product? We then zoomed in on the people who said they'd be very disappointed without it. These are the people who love it. We then analyzed their answers to question number two to figure out the main benefits of the product. We now know what people love about the product. We then use that to segment the people who are somewhat on the fence into people who are somewhat on the fence but the main benefit doesn't resonate and people who are somewhat on the fence but the main benefit does resonate. We then went into that latter segment and we zoomed in on what was holding them back. What could we improve about the product for them? And it stands to reason that if we just built those things, we would convert them from being on the fence into fanatics who love the product. And Superhuman is a living, real testament to this. If you look at our product market fit scores every quarter over time, we've been able to systematically optimize that number. What if the framework is, is fascinating? And honestly, this is it's one of the you know few conversations I've had with founders where I, I candidly find myself you know, just listening and internalizing because of how powerful of a framework it is. And I, I think one of the interesting things is when you take the core framework itself, you know, you walk through systematically, you know, you, you find product market fit, right? Uh, and you continue to iterate, you have, you know, you have the mechanics and the inputs then, you know, to build your roadmap, both the core features as well, you know, as the ancillary pieces to convert, you know, some of those somewhat disappointed users Talk a little bit also, though, you know, if we put this now framework to side and say that's the core in, in building the product and really building something people love, right? Talk about some of the unique aspects that you've put that have surrounded this idea of finding product market fit. You know, you have a very unique onboarding approach, you know, at Superhuman. Um, I think the the way that you were alluding to and talking about, you know, growth early on, you've in in many ways you've turned you know, superhuman in, into somewhat of a status symbol, you know, for those in tech, there's a significant wait list, right? So there's a lot of anticipation for users to come onto the platform, which, you know, from a business perspective and the business model perspective, you say, which is great, it's, you know, a huge latent user base. But as you alluded to earlier and, and dissected earlier, it also allows your team to scale into that user base, right? So talk a little bit about you know, some of, some of those are examples that I've seen from the outside in. Um, I'm sure you have many others inside out. But talk about those kinds of interesting, you know, kind of nuances that you put as an ancillary really around that core framework of quantitatively finding product market fit. Sure. I think a lot of people look at Superhuman and assume we're running the wait list in, in order to generate hype or, you know, for some kind of FOMO mechanism, and, and that could not be further from the truth. The, and, and I wish, actually, I could turn back time and say, ah, yes, I'm a genius. Obviously, invented this idea of onboarding, and it turns out to be remarkable in a number of dimensions. That's also not true. Uh, we very organically and iteratively found our way 
to our current go-to-market. And you're right, it's pretty interesting. I, I think we've come up with a, a whole new way to go-to-market that we're actually now seeing uh, be replicated and copied and, and actually improved upon at other companies ac across Silicon Valley. People are referring to the superhuman go-to-market or the superhuman strategy or the superhuman onboardings. Now, the way that it all started was because of everything that I said previously. I didn't want to be the kind of company that launched a thing, threw some, threw some software over the wall, and didn't have the time to improve it for subsequent cohorts of users. And I also really wanted to understand our users in really, really great detail. And so I personally onboarded the first several hundred users. And they weren't onboardings like they appear today. These were several hour meetings. They were almost always in person. I would begin by showing a demo of the product. I would watch how people were doing their email in Gmail or whatever other email experience they were using. I would then get them onto Superhuman, configure it perfectly for them. And then I would insist that I watch them use it for at least half an hour. And during that time, I would find bugs. I would find areas where maybe we had considered things incorrectly. And every single time, I would take that back to the team and we would improve the product so that for next week's users, it was even better. And we're not talking about a large volume here. We're talking about maybe onboarding between three and five people per week. But one of the key things is that no one got it for free. Everyone at this time was paying for Superhuman right from day one, right from the very first user, so we could have an intellectually honest conversation around whether we were delivering value for money. So this was phase one of onboarding, where it was just me. And it turned out to be remarkably effective. When we looked at how these users were doing, their churn was benchmark low, their retention was benchmark high, their NPS was through the roof, their virality was sky high. And I was wondering, well, maybe it was me. Maybe it was because the CEO took the time to sit down with them and onboard them. And so in order to remove me as a variable, I then asked my head of growth to do it and to do it faster than I did it with shorter onboardings. And he scaled it to about 20 onboardings per week, got the time down from three hours to about one and a half hours. And again, the metrics were fantastic. And then we thought, well, maybe it's him. Maybe we should try somebody else doing it. So we actually hired a tiger team, two or three people as growth generalists to do this as part of their work. Now, they were also doing customer support. They were also doing uh, top of funnel marketing and sales work. But they started to experiment on this onboarding and they compressed the time from one and a half hours to about 45 minutes to one hour, and they were each doing even more volume than 20 onboardings. I think they pushed it to 30 onboardings per person per week. And again, the metrics continue to look fantastic. And maybe, and at this point we were like, well, something is going on here. We, we seem to have found a, a whole new way of doing this. And so we decided to hire our first dedicated onboarding specialist team, and we hired six people to do this full-time, aiming to do in the region of 40 to 50 calls per person per week, onboarding people onto Superhuman, driving the length of an onboarding at this point to half an hour per person without making, or rather without losing 
any of the parts that makes it super special and tremendously effective. And so that's what we actually did. Uh, all of those metrics continue to perform excellently. And today we have a team of 14 onboarding specialists who actually do this full time. How have, you know, Rahul, as you've built the company in, uh, and I, I have to commend you, you've, you've built it in a way in which, you know, it's, it's easy for people to follow the story, to follow the journey, to follow a lot of the lessons like the product market framework, uh, fit framework that we spent a lot of time talking today. You know, you've also admirably had to handle, uh, you know, the growing pains of a scaling company uh, in, in public earlier in the year. You know, there was a there was a criticism around some of the security and the privacy policies around superhuman and, and the way you addressed it and the way you handled it, I think, was an absolute masterclass for, you know, CEOs and founders watching. What have been the, you know, the the learning lessons and, um, you know, the iterative cycles you've had to take, you know, in growing, uh, growing a hyperscale company? You had experience before. Obviously, you've had successes before, um, but with every new entity comes, you know, comes new challenges. I think that it's really important to surround ourselves with incredible mentors and teachers and advisors so that whenever we're running into a challenge, uh, whether it's the one that you referred to earlier this year, or it could be a hiring challenge, or it could be a personnel issue, there are people that we can turn to that we know have our best interests at heart, have the company's best interests at heart, who are experienced and wise, who can provide moral support or empathy if that's what's needed and can just keep us going. And too often I see companies, and I'm also an active angel investor, so you know I work with a number of outside companies. I see companies where the founders are not investing as much as I think that they ought to, or as much as I have and we have here at Superhuman in outside help and mentorship. Because whether or not you're a serial entrepreneur, at some point, we all have to do this for the first time. And so we need to surround ourselves with sage advice so that we can take the best possible decisions. You know, Rahul, this has been, this has been an incredibly interesting conversation. I, I, I want to finish off kind of with the last question. And it's, it's, it's kind of the, it's a take on the Peter Thiel question of, you know, what do you believe in the world that others don't, don't believe? What, what do you believe about the email experience? And, and maybe we can extend it candidly more broadly to, to communication and engagement, you know, that nobody else in the world would agree with you on. Hmm. Interesting. I think that I have a vision for the email experience that actually, uh, once I articulate it, uh, will sound quite obvious, and you'll probably agree with me right off the bat. Um, but then perhaps my vision for how communication, productivity, and uh, more generally enterprise software will change, uh, that, that's a little bit newer, and I, I think might take people by surprise. As to how email looks and how that will change, I think there's three very obvious trends. I think number one, uh, you're gonna see a lot more AI, a lot more machine learning, uh, you'll see us at Superhuman invest in this area next year. I think there, there, come, there will come a day where your emails are automatically written for you and not in the, in the rather somewhat creepy way that perhaps Gmail is doing at present uh, where everyone ends up sounding a little bit cookie cutter, uh, but in a way where it actually legitimately sounds like you. I think number two, you'll see a lot more tooling around collaboration, things like 
assigning emails to each other, delegation, tasks, shared drafts. A lot of what we do in email is, uh, especially in the work context, which of course is where Superhuman focuses, is assigning work to and from each other and letting each other know when we have or have not done that work. And email today and features like reminders and snooze are very, very broad abstractions over what's actually happening. And I think we'll see tighter abstractions that more accurately represent the work that people are trying to get done. And thirdly, and lastly, I think you'll see emails themselves getting shorter and shorter and shorter. It turns out that about half of all emails that we now send are one-liners. In other words, email clients will turn into messaging apps. Uh, you know, and I think this is something that arguably Slack and the other messaging apps didn't quite get right, although of course I understand why their narrative was their narrative, but email isn't about to go away and die. And in fact, email is, is very much here to stay and is still growing rapidly every single year. And that's because we are treating email like we treat our messaging apps. And that is a trend that, that we see continuing. So those are my thoughts on email. I think zooming out more broadly, a huge wave that we're going to see is the prosumerization of the enterprise. We all already know what the consumerization of the enterprise is. This is the idea that as knowledge workers, uh, we're now used to the fit and finish that applications like Uber have trained us to expect everything should be uh, you know, exceptionally well executed and highly polished. And of course, we expect that now in our work software. The next big trend is the prosumerization of the enterprise. The idea that up until very recently, no one was building software for people like you and me. That up until very recently, if you wanted to do some email, you had two choices. It was Gmail by Google and Outlook by Microsoft. And these are commodity tools. They are tools that are one-size-fits-all solutions that are built for everybody. The chances that they actually do what you as a prosumer would find best are next to nil. Now, we're seeing that happen in email, and I think we're going to see this happen in literally every single type of software that professionals use. The prosumer segment will be sliced out and will be served with incredible, premium, high-end, compelling software that is probably worth a lot of money, meaning there'll be real subscription price tags associated with that software, and folks will happily pay it because it will make these users tremendously more productive, more efficient, more effective, and at the end of the day, more relaxed in their day-to-day -day work. Rahul, this has been a, an, an incredibly interesting conversation, and I'm so glad you were able to make the time. You know, thanks again for joining us. This was a this was a deeply educational conversation, and, and I really know the audience will, you know, will thoroughly enjoy it. We we really enjoyed having you on today. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me.